Welcome back to the podcast. This is Charlotte, Creative and Technical Director here at Evidence for Faith. And today we are back in our Give Me a Reason to Believe series. We are on session two since it's Tuesday. And we are looking at evidence that Jesus is the Messiah through prophecies today. Because if our faith is worth anything, Jesus has to be who he says he is. So Michael will be looking at that today. But before we jump into it, I have to get my little advertising spot in. Um, and I'll be advertising until we hit about 30 to 35 people on this trip. And that is the 2023 Israel trip, because we need to get people in now. You need to get your passports in, you need to get your travel plans in. We are going to be going to Israel to visit some of the uh, archaeological sites down there, going through biblical history. And it will not just be Michael Lane teaching, but we'll also have the wonderful Dr. Stephen Notley, who is an archaeologist and scholar down there, who will also uh, be team teaching with Michael and taking us through the different sites and what you'll be looking at and where, you know, where did this happen in the Bible? And this is a really unique opportunity if you want to see what's in your Bible, see it in real life. So I have not been on this trip yet, so I'm really looking forward to it. So if you have never been on this trip, I really encourage you to check it out. Um, of course, it is a little pricey because, you know, we're taking a plane. It's an international flight. But if you want to get in on that, you can go to evidenceforfaith.org, click the events tab and check out the 2023 Israel trip. I will also have all the links in the description, wherever you may be listening this at. So with that, um, as a reminder, this broadcast is made possible by donors just like you. If you'd like to help support this broadcast and keep it free, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And without further ado, here is Michael in Give Me a Reason to Believe, session two, evidence that Jesus is the Messiah through prophecies. Welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. I am so glad you're joining us today as we continue in our series. This is the second part of this series we're doing called Give Me a Reason to Believe. Give me a reason to believe. That's a great summation of what our ministry, Evidence for Faith, is all about, is to give you a reason to believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that his word is true. And as we're going through this lesson today, this one we're entitling Evidence Jesus is the Messiah through prophecies. Now, we're talking primarily today, we're going to be focusing mostly in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And in there, we will see a bunch of different prophecies that will tell who the Messiah is and how people would recognize the Messiah. Now, there are other prophecies in there that haven't yet been fulfilled because there's two different messiahs that are mentioned in the Old Covenant. There's a suffering messiah, a suffering messiah who, who that's who Jesus came and was. And when he came, he came as the suffering messiah. This is what we're going to deal with. But there's also some prophecies that haven't come true yet to deal with the future. And that's when Jesus returns as the victorious warrior, judge, king messiah. The first time he comes is to show us the character of God. And uh, he's trying to show us the way of salvation. When he comes the second time, he will come with a sword and he will be a warrior, judge, Messiah. And um, those prophecies, as I said, those have not been fulfilled yet. But we're going to focus on 25 of the suffering Messiah prophecies. Now, the thing is, there are a lot of these. And if you want more information on this, we have a whole series we just concluded not long ago. Uh, we call it the Road to Emmaus. And in the Road to Emmaus, that is covering about 80 or so of the major messianic prophecies of the suffering Messiah. And so if you want to get into detail, please go to our website, pull this up and, and listen through that because it's a fascinating, fascinating study. This is uh, like a little thumbprint or um, a little summary of what we're going to see from that, that type of thing. But I want to point out something really important to you here as we get started. You see, to have these prophecies and how the Jews who were being given, the old covenant was given to the Jews, for them to recognize the Messiah, God gave them clues. And that's what you see from the book of Genesis all the way through Malachi. You see different clues that God gives about how you will recognize Messiah, what his life will be like, and what he will do. Now, as there are literally over 250 or so of these prophecies, about 80 major ones, what is fascinating is this that for somebody to be born, for one person to be born and fulfill all of these, that's quite um, an amazing miracle. You see, 
back in the 1990s, mathematicians and some physicists were working, trying to figure out what's the odds of impossibility. Now, as I used to work in fisheries genetics and um, did research and, and um, wrote a master's thesis and stuff on all of this, we used and we would constantly use, and as a teacher, when I used to teach AP biology, we would use some, uh, we would do some probability experiments and stuff. And how do you know if something is impossible? Well, in the 1990s, they calculated what is impossibility. And it's when you have the odds, like if you're going to flip a coin and you flip a coin like, you know, it's a two-sided coin, um, a heads and a tail and you flip it and it turns up heads and you flip it again, turns up heads. Whoa, we got two heads in a row. Um, or if you flip it a third time, whoa, it came up heads again, you know. Um, they, they did. That's, that's talking about probability. And they figured out that when you get to the odds of something happening where it's one to ten to the 50th power, and that's a scientific notation, 10 to the 50th power is a one followed by 50 zeros. I have no idea what you even call that number, um, but one with 50 zeros behind it. Anything beyond that is considered scientifically impossible. In other words, you could take a coin, flip it, in the air, let it come down at, uh, apparently at random, and as it hits, and it comes up, say, heads. And if you flip this coin a hundred times and a hundred times, and it's a normal coin, there's nothing wrong with it, it came up a hundred times as heads, you would almost think, well, that's like really impossible. It's not. It is scientifically possible. Even if you flip it a million times and every time it comes up head. Now, yes, that is highly improbable, but it's not impossible. When you get to 10 to the 50th power, there's where science says, okay, now we have, we've reached the end of um, improbability and we've gone to impossibility. Well, people have calculated what's the odds of one person being born and fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the, the suffering Messiah. And it's fascinating what they came up with, that the odds of one person fulfilling all these prophecies is one to the 10 to the 250th power. Did you get that? That's a one with 250 zeros behind it. I have no idea what you would call a number like that, but that's the odds. Thus, for someone to be born, if you follow it now, for someone to be born that could fulfill all of the, as one person, to fulfill all of these Old Testament prophecies is scientifically impossible. But we're talking about God. God is famous for doing the impossible. Thus, this is a miracle that Jesus does that people don't even recognize, that fulfilling all these prophecies. And in doing so, he is proving, again, that he truly is the Messiah. And so the Old Testament prophecies support the claim that Jesus is the true suffering Messiah. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to quickly go through just a summation of some of these. And we're going to get into great detail. Like I said, we have another lesson on that if you want. But if you're just looking for a really quick little lesson about uh, some of these prophecies, we're going to look at 25 very quickly that Jesus fulfilled. Even the odds of one person fulfilling 25 of these is like impossible. Yet Jesus did it. So as we explore, let's start. We're going to start in Genesis. We're going to work our way through Malachi very quickly here, uh, covering many of the books of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. The first one that comes up, the first major prophecy we come across is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And this is what I call the purpose, the purpose. And to set the scene for you here, this is in the garden. Adam and Eve have been created. They're living in a garden, but this is when they sin. So the sin happens at this point. And so what we have is they have sinned. God now um, acknowledges that they have sinned. They realize, wow, we have sinned against God. I get it. So God says, you know, if you sin, you die. That was the penalty. But man chose poorly here. And so in their choice, God should have. And why he didn't is is boggling my mind to this day. Why, when we sin, God just doesn't destroy us because we are no longer holy. We're no longer pure and perfect, but he doesn't because he loves us. But he gives us a prophecy from the very first sin. And it reads Genesis 3, 15. And all these verses, unless I tell you otherwise, we're taking out the English standard version. In Genesis 3, 15, the first one comes up and it reads this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Now notice in this little seemingly insignificant verse, God is saying 
to Adam and Eve that he's going to fix the problem of sin. That's what he's talking about. It's going to fix the problem of sin. And in doing so, someone's going to be born, it says, of a woman. Thus, there's going to be a person born um, between your offspring, her offspring. And notice that it says, he shall bruise. Thus, it is a male. A male child will be born who will be the person who fixed this, but he will be injured in the process where it says um, bruise his heel. So it's going to be a, uh, a Messiah who's going to come. He's going to fix the problem with sin because that's what God is dealing with here. It's going to fix the problem with sin. It'll be a person who will be born of a woman. So that's the first one. And of course, Jesus was. He was born of the Virgin Mary. The second prophecy we see um, we'll talk about here is God's, this is happening centuries later, but God's going to tell him a little bit more about how you can recognize the Messiah, that he will come from the tribe of Judah. He'll come from the tribe of Judah. And we see this in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Now, I'm going to read this one out of the New American Standard Bible because it's a, a, a more accurate word for word. It's a very good uh, translation. It's written on a collegiate level, so that's why sometimes I'm sort of careful. I'm talking with little kids and stuff. I usually don't use that translation as much. But this is what it says, um, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Now, this is an important statement because it says the scepter. The scepter, what's a scepter? Something that king holds. So the scepter will not depart from Judah. That's the tribe of Judah. Of the 12 tribes, that was the tribe that is going to be blessed with the Messiah coming from. And so this ruler that's going to come, this, this Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah. That's what we see here. Um, we move down into the, the next one, the third one. Um, this is taken from Psalm. We're going to skip all the way up to Psalm chapter 2, and we're going to come across what we're going to title this one, the Son of God. The Messiah will be known as the Son of God. How do we know this? Because in Psalm 2, you will read, I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, some of these prophecies have dual meanings to them. Some are pertaining to a specific person, maybe like David, King David and stuff. Others, they have that purpose there, but there's also in there a hidden message dealing with the coming Messiah. And this is one of these, that he would be the Son of God. We all today realize Jesus is the Son of God. Um, people commonly say that he is the Son of God. Where do they get that? It's out of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 has quite a few different verses that are found in here, and they're all pointing out that he will be the Son of God. And it, Jesus, of course, was um, and is the Son of God. Let's go to the next one. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, we're going to call this one, this is number four, we're going to call this one the resurrection. Did you know that it was prophesied back over... Um, over a thousand years before the time of uh, Jesus's appearance that he would actually be resurrected. The resurrection, the death of Jesus and the resurrection was all planned out by God, you know, at the beginning. And here he's telling the Jews of a specific prophecy that he will, you'll recognize him because he will rise from the dead. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, it reads, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, what we mean by corruption here is decay. So, in other words, the body will be um, killed, but it will not decompose. It will not decay. Why? Because it's being resurrected. So the resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate at Easter time, was foretold by David in Psalm 16:10, a thousand years before it actually happened. Let's go to Psalm 22. Oh my gosh, there are so many verses in this one. We can't even cover them all um, in, in a short little thing. But there's 22, uh, Psalm 22 has more to say about the death of the, of the Messiah. We just got done talking about he's going to be resurrected. Well, now we see a, a prophecies, numerous prophecies concerning his death. And in Psalm 22, it's one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, New Covenant, um, because there are so many things that take place. If you're familiar with the Easter story of the gospel accounts of Jesus's death, you're going to see a lot of this right in here being foretold a thousand years before. In verse 1, for instance, it says, uh, we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hey, Jesus quoted that right on the cross. Uh, you look down to verse 6, and it says, Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. 
Jesus was despised by the people. I mean, the Pharisees were constantly, and the Sadducees despising him. And they even called him a despised Samaritan many times, even though he wasn't a Samaritan. Um, verse 7, the very next verse, it, uh, we read, All who see me mock me. We know Jesus was mocked during his life, but also on the cross. They were making fun of him on the cross. They were mocking him on the cross. Verse 15, scroll down to that. You see, my tongue sticks to my jaws. That is extremely common of crucifixion. Roman-style crucifixion, it is, um, you get extremely dehydrated from the flogging and stuff, but also your tongue, as a result, often would stick to the mouth of the individual. So we see this is giving an indication of how he's going to be killed. This doesn't happen as much when you're being stoned. Um, stoned to death, they could take a big stone, just whack you over the head and kill you instantly. No, that was the primary execution style of the Jews. But Jesus had to be crucified. He had to be sacrificed on a wooden cross as a prophecy also. But here we see the tongue sticks to my jaws. Verse 18, just skip down a couple more. We see, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Oh my gosh, the Romans did this exact act at the foot of the cross. Look up John chapter 19, verses 23 through 24. You see what's going on? They're sitting at the cross playing for his garments, playing um, a game of lots for it. Oh my gosh. So we see these things right here in Psalm 22. Amazing prophecy. Oh, it, how did Jesus get to the cross? He's going to be betrayed by a friend. This is number six. Number six that we're looking at today is Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. And we're titling this one, Betrayal of a Friend. And it reads, Even my close friend, in whom I ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So he will be betrayed by a close friend. And of course, as we know from the four Gospels, Judas Iscariot betrays him. One of his disciples actually betrays him. And we see this fulfilled. Uh, number seven. Oh, this is an amazing one. It's Psalm uh, chapter 69. It's practically the entire psalm. There are so many things in here. I'm not even going to be able to cover them all. We're just going to call this one here the suffering Messiah, that the Messiah, when he comes, would suffer. And we see so many things throughout Psalm 69. Take a, uh, take a few moments, um, pull up Psalm 69, read through it, and thinking about the suffering Jesus. You're going to see so many things fulfilled here. It's an amazing prophecy. Or number eight, let's take a look at Psalm chapter chapter 78, verses 1 and 2. This one's interesting. I get asked many times, why is Jesus always teaching in parables? Why was Jesus frequently in Matthew, Mark, and Luke talking in parables? Because it was a prophecy he would be doing that. It was a way the Jews were supposed to recognize the Messiah when he came. Because in Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2, we read, Give an ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. This is talking about how you're going to recognize Messiah. He's going to be a parable teaching Messiah. And Jesus was. I mean, Jesus is well-known today as a very well-known parable-teaching uh, Messiah. As a teacher in school, when I used to teach in public school, <laughs> I learned something about parables and stories myself. I found out my first year I ever taught, and this was down in the Bahamas when I was teaching school my first year, that at the end of the school year, <laughs> I gave um, uh, exams at the end to see how much the students had obtained of knowledge that I had presented them in science and, and history, which I was also teaching. I found that they didn't remember nearly as many things about science and history as I taught them as they did about the stories that I told them and parables and things like this. They remembered all those. So thus, I thought, you know, Jesus taught with parables. So I started teaching and still do when I teach classes. I often use stories because it helps people to remember and they can relate better. Jesus did this also, but it was prophesied. Now, let's go to number nine. Number nine is Psalm chapter 89, verses three and four. Now here we're going to see, and this is actually repeated numerous times in the Old Covenant, but he will be a descendant of David. And um, that's what we're calling this one, a descendant of David. Psalm 89, 3 and 4 reads, I have sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever. Thus the Messiah will be an everlasting um, genealogy from David all the way through forever, because God lives forever. So we have that taking place here. Jesus is a descendant of David. And, we, and this was well known. 
Um, in Mark chapter 10, we read about a blind man named uh, Bartimaeus who um, called out to Jesus as Jesus walked by. And he called him the son of David. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So this was, some people were catching these. Obviously, some people did believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And this was one of the titles, that he would be the um, a descendant of David. Number 10, this is from Psalm 109, verses 6, and also verse 8. I'm going to take a part from each one of these, and this is all about the betrayal again, about what Judas Iscariot's going to do. The betrayal was predicted. It was prophesied. And we read in Psalm 109, verse 6, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. All right, this is important because this is somebody standing at your right hand means a close friend. Um, somebody who's very close to the person, that was, of course, Judas. You look down at verse 8, it says, May his days be few, may another take his office. Well, that is exactly what happened. As you read the book of Acts, uh, well, Judas committed suicide. Even that he screwed up. He didn't even kill himself, right? I mean, he got the project done. He got killed. But even that, he hung himself from a tree and the rope broke and he fell and um, he, he was killed. But then the important thing is, so that's why it says his days will be numbered or be few. But then we read in Acts that he is being replaced as a, a, a disciple of Jesus by uh, Matthias. He takes his place. That was all prophesied. Okay, let's look at number 11. In number 11, we're going to read Psalm 118 verse 22. And this one's interesting because God predicts a thousand years before it's going to happen that people will reject the suffering Messiah because it reads, the stone that the builders reject has become the cornerstone. People will reject the Messiah. People will reject Jesus. And you know something? To this day, people reject Jesus as the Messiah. God predicted it perfectly. He nailed it, that they would. And that's what we see, even to this day. Then we get to one of my favorite ones, number 12. This is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Probably a familiar verse to many of you, because this one talks about the virgin birth. And we read this a lot of times uh, around Christmas and stuff, and it reads, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, this is an interesting passage because this is talking about the virgin birth. Now, some skeptics of, of Jesus will say, well, this is talking about Isaiah and his own son. Well, no, look at the first part of this verse. It says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. It's talking about a new supernatural event is going to take place. A supernatural event. A woman giving birth is not a supernatural event. Yes, it's something to celebrate, but it's not a supernatural event. Isaiah's wife, yeah, had children, but she was not a virgin when it happened. It says the virgin shall conceive. And the thing is, the whole point is how this starts off. The Lord is going to give you a sign, a supernatural sign of this Messiah who's coming. So it's talking about Jesus as the Messiah, that the virgin will conceive and bear a son. He, it has to be a virgin. Because he's got to have, he has to be human, thus he's born of a woman, going back to the first prophecy in Genesis. So he has to be born of a woman to be part of the human race. But it has to be God, because he's got to be able to die for all of the, the sins of mankind, plus to fulfill all these prophecies. No human person can do it. It takes a deity to do it. So Jesus is both human and both God, 100% of each. Don't ask me how that works, because that's a miracle in itself right there. Uh, theologians have been trying to figure that out for centuries, and we still can't figure it out. We never will um, in, on our life on earth. But Jesus is both God, he is both man, and he was born of a virgin. No question about that. So, moving on to number 13. Where will he come from? How will we know the Messiah? Because where will he come from? Well, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, tells us where the Messiah is going to be. And it says, and I'm entitling this one, from the land of Galilee. So, we read in Isaiah 9, 1, In the former time he brought into, into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And he talks about how in Galilee, there's going to be this light 
that's going to come. And it's talking about not, you know, an electric light bulb's talking about the Messiah, that he comes from the land of Galilee. Of course, we know that Jesus uh, was born in Bethlehem, which that fulfills a prophecy we'll see, but he would live and dwell in Galilee. That's what this is saying here. And even the scribes um, and some of the, the Sadducees really messed this up when Jesus was there speaking to them because they even say, no prophet ever comes from Galilee. Well, there were prophets from Galilee. For one, you have this prophecy here. And also, if you read the book of Jonah, Jonah was a prophet and he came from a city called Gath Hepper, which is right by where Nazareth, the New Testament city of Nazareth, where Jesus would be living and growing up, they're basically in the same spot. And so Gath Hepper was right there by Nazareth in the land of Galilee. And where did Jesus do most of his ministry? In Galilee, the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. If you draw um, from like Bethsaida to Chorazin to Capernaum and then back to Bethsaida, you make a triangle. It's called the Evangelical Triangle because that's where Jesus spent the majority of his ministry. Occasionally, he went down to the south to Jerusalem as required by the law, as he had to fulfill the law for us. But he did most of his ministry in Galilee. And that was to fulfill this prophecy. Then we get to one of my absolute favorite, favorite prophecies of all. Oh, there's so much in this. It's amazing. It's Isaiah chapter 9, same chapter, but we're going to skip down now to verse 6 and 7. This is about, and I'm entitling this, He Will Be God. This is really cool. Many of you know this because of Handel's Messiah, the music, musical number, um, beautiful thing that often is sung around Christmas times and stuff. But Look what this says. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David, we just covered that, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. Now, this is an amazing prophecy because it's telling us a son will be born. This goes back to Genesis 3, that a son will be born. A child's going to be born. We just found out he will be from a virgin. And the thing is, he is God. Now, notice the titles that this prophecy that Isaiah is told by God to give him. And to write down, wonderful counselor, that's a good one. He's mighty God. This Messiah is God. We've already covered that with some other ones. He's the son of God. He is God. But I love this next one, everlasting father. Do you understand what that's saying? He is the everlasting father. Jesus and God are one. They're one. And it says this right here. I've had people many times try and get into conversations with me on that Jesus actually is not God, or he's a lesser or a minor God, or he's a man that became a God, or an angel that changed into a God. No, 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 no. Because this prophecy right here tells us. I mean, there's other verses you find in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And even in the Greek, uh, some will try and twist the way that the Greek is written. It's actually talking about that Jesus here would be the word is God, not a type of God. He is God. It talks about it in Colossians and you get into Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We see he is the exact character, the exact imprint, if you will, of God. This all goes back to show us that Jesus truly is God. He's called the everlasting father. As I had a discussion one time with a person, they were trying to tell me that Jesus wasn't God um, or that he was a lesser type of a God. And I said, well, how do you explain Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, where he is actually in, given the title of everlasting father? That means he is the same, made of the same essence as what God the Father is. They are one. That is why. He's not no lesser God. He is, it says here, everlasting father, the prince of peace. This is so cool. Well, let's move to the next one. This is I, number 15, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6. There's a number of verses on this one that I really struggle with. Well, what one should I give you? Uh, this is a really easy one to understand. This is about a healing Messiah. How will you recognize the Messiah? He will be a healing Messiah. Now get this, because I'm going to explain something here. It's really cool. It reads, 
Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You know, there's a, these are healing, healing miracles. How cool is this? Now, let me, let me just explain something about miracles. When Jesus was doing miracles, some of the miracles he did were also uh, repeats from things that some of the prophets did in the Old Testament. For instance, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, John chapter 10, beautiful story there. Well, it is true that Elijah and Elisha also, through God's power, raised people from the dead. There are things that you see. Some people were sick with leprosy. They got healed. You see some miracles like this. So many miracles that appeared from the prophets, uh, Jesus duplicated, which would just indicate to many people, which it did, that he was a prophet. So he was often called a prophet. But there's something else here, something that's different. Because Jesus, you know, well, he did. He, he healed people who uh, were mute. He healed people who were lame. He healed people who were deaf. But he healed people who were blind. Take a look in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Look at miracles. You're never going to find somebody healing a blind man. Somebody blind from birth and being able to see. No prophet ever did that. To the ancient Jews, that is an act reserved only for God himself. Thus, when Jesus heals the blind people, and he does it on more than one occasion, when he heals them, to the Jews, they should have recognized, hey, this is an act only God can do. That's why this is so important. Yes, he would be a healing Messiah. And we see it also in a couple of other passages in the Old Covenant that he would be a healing Messiah when he comes. Jesus fulfilled that constantly among the people. Number 16, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 52, uh, starting at verse 13 and going through chapter 53, verse 12. We're not going to read the whole thing because we're short on time. If, Like I say, if you want to go to our Road to Emmaus lesson, you can get into this and I go into detail on it. But I'm just going to entitle this, The Preview of the Scourging and the Burial. We read this passage many times in churches around Easter because Isaiah, who's living hundreds of years before Christ, was given a tremendous gift. God allowed Isaiah to be able to see into the future an event taking place dealing with the Messiah and specifically the scourging by the Romans and his death and burial. It's all described and Isaiah describes it perfectly. He doesn't miss a thing. Jesus fulfilled all of these different things in here. Take some time, read that passage, uh, chapter 52, starting at verse 13, and go through chapter 53, verse 12. And I'll tell you something else. Some people will have tried to tell me this. Some, some scholars, uh, college professors and stuff, have tried to tell me the reason that Isaiah got this so accurately is because this was written after the time of Jesus. That's why they were able, that this Isaiah book was written like uh, a couple hundred years after Jesus to make Jesus into a Messiah. How wrong that is. And I offer evidence to support this. And I can disprove them right now. Take a look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, we have at least five copies, complete copies of the book of Isaiah. All of these copies have been verified through many different scientific means. And every single one agrees they were written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. No. Don't, don't ever let anybody ever tell you that Jesus, uh, that these Old Testament prophecies and stuff were written after the point uh, of Jesus' life a couple hundred years. No, because the Dead Sea Scrolls prove these things were written hundreds of years, in some cases over 300, 350 years before Jesus was even born. And it is identical with what we see in our Bible today. Let's move to the next one. Uh, number 17. This is Daniel chapter 6. Wait a minute. A whole chapter again? Boy, you're giving me a long passage. Obviously, we can't read this, but this is a fascinating, oh my gosh, this is one of the coolest prophecies uh, ever having to do with, with Jesus and the Messiah. Because do you know those beautiful stories that we have with Daniel, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, and, or um, his, uh, in the, um, his three friends in the fiery furnace, and even the beginning of Daniel when they're taken and put into, uh, taken to Babylon, and they change their names, change their clothes, change their diet, or at least they try to all these do you know that those are all prophecies dealing with what's going to happen to israel and the jews during the times of the gentiles when's the times of the gentiles it started at the fall of jerusalem by nebuchadnezzar 
Israel has never had a descendant of David sitting on the throne since then. Um, Jesus, though, is a descendant and is King Jesus today, and it's forever. But the thing is, physically, even to this day, Israel does not have a king, a descendant of David sitting on the throne. They've got a prime minister, but they don't have a king. Now, all of these prophecies are showing what's going to happen to the Jews. And one of the things that Daniel's mentioning is he does often in his book, he talks about how you will recognize the Messiah. And in chapter 6, we have this very familiar passage, Daniel in the lion's den. Take a moment, read that chapter, then read through the gospel accounts of Jesus's trial and death and resurrection. You're going to see some really astonishing, absolutely astonishing parallels. For instance, Jesus, well, Daniel was brought up on Trump charges that weren't true by some jealous people. Jesus was brought up to Pilate by some people on trumped up charges. Daniel, in his case, Darius, understood and saw what was happening and knew that he that this was a setup. And he tries to get Daniel out of being sentenced to death in the lion's den. Pilate sees what's going on with the Jews, realizes this guy's innocent, tries to proclaim him innocent, tries to get him out of it, but can't do it. Darius is um, bound by the law that he has to commit Daniel to death. Pilate commits Jesus to death because they compare him with Caesar and stuff. So there's a law for that. Darius puts Daniel in the lion's den. Now we know from archaeology, these lion's dens were pits in the ground with a hole at the top with a big stone that would be rolled over the top of it. But they were holes in the ground. And Daniel, it says, was lowered into the earth. Jesus is put into a tomb made in the earth. Same thing. Daniel is sealed with a stone. Jesus sealed with a stone. Darius seals the tomb with his signet ring, with the signet, making it official. Pilate orders the tomb of Jesus sealed with a signet of Rome. Daniel comes out alive out of the earth. Jesus comes up alive out of his grave in the earth. You see the similarities? This is amazing. That's Daniel chapter 6. Read that one. Read that story again and just look at the parallels. It's remarkable what is here. And we see this. And Daniel even goes on, just a little tidbit here more. And Daniel, I believe it's chapter 9, even gives us the time frame of when the Messiah would be born. But you want more on that? You're going to have to go to the Road to Emmaus lecture for that one. Let's go to number 18. Number 18, Daniel. We're still in the same book, Daniel. Daniel, a very important prophecy we have to cover here, and it's in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and it reads, and be, well, first of all, I'm going to give you the title, he will be called the Son of Man. It reads, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to, who, and to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom will be one that will not be destroyed. What's talking? Okay, what's going on here? Well, we're going to get two titles of God. We see the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? Father God. Because we see this person, the subject of this, coming and being presented and coming in before the Ancient of Days, standing before him. The Ancient of Days is the Father. Now, who is coming? It says, Son of Man. There came one like a Son of Man. That is a messianic title. Now, Jesus had uh, different titles. There's many different titles for the Messiah, but Jesus had a favorite. And you see it, if you read through particularly Mark, you'll see Jesus constantly referring himself as he's talking to people as the Son of Man. Now, some will say Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. Oh, that is so wrong. Why? Because the Son of Man is a messianic title. Do you understand this? Every single time Jesus claims to be the Son of Man, he's claiming to be the Messiah. 
I've had many discussions with people. I remember one time with a youth group sitting uh, with a bunch of uh, teens. Actually, they were unchurched group. It was just a big group of teens, high school teens. And uh, one of them said, asked me a question. Was it time for them to ask me questions? One asked me, they said, Jesus never claimed to be the Messiah. And so why do you why do you call him the Messiah? And I said, well, do you understand that uh, the, uh, the word Messiah, Mashiach, means anointed one, um, but that's not the only title for the Messiah. He also had other titles, uh, the branch, uh, morning star. He had many, many titles, but one from the book of Daniel was prophesied called the son of man. And I said, what did Jesus constantly call himself? The son of man. Thus, every time Jesus is doing that, the Jews should have caught it. That every time he is saying this, he's calling himself the Son of Man. Actually, eventually some of the Jews did catch on to this. And at one point they picked up stones to stone him. But yep, he would be called the Son of Man. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, that's a prophecy that he would be the Messiah. Let's go to number 19. We have Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Um, he will come from Egypt. He will come from Egypt. Again, we sometimes see this in the Christmas story. When, e uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And we know part of the Christmas story. Herod the Great tried to kill the baby Jesus. Actually, he was a toddler at this time. And so, because the Greek word that's used in Matthew's account on this is the word for toddler. So he's um, not an infant. The wise men didn't come the night of, um, of all of the um, Christmas story taking place. They came later because they come into a house, not a stable. They go into their home. And they worship him, and they leave gold, myrrh, and, and frankincense for him. And God is providing. That's the gold that's going to allow them to make this long trip, because they were very poor people. But they would go to Egypt, and they would stay in Egypt for a while, and then they would come out. And it was prophesied in Hosea. That's what we see here. Number 20, we have Micah chapter 2, or I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Um, this is going to be the place of the Messiah's birth. Again, we read this at Christmas time. When the wise men came, and the reason the wise men knew the Messiah was being born is because the wise men were uh, Chaldeans, Magi. Well, Daniel, going back to the time of Nebuchadnezzar, was made the chief of all the Magi. Um, and so they had Daniel's writings and many other writings, many other prophecies. So they they knew his time was to be born. They figured out Daniel's cipher found in chapter 9, and they figured out the time. So they came looking for him, but they didn't have, obviously, they didn't have the book of Micah. So they had to ask, where is the Messiah to be born? And they asked Herod. Herod has no idea. He's not even Jewish. He's an Edomite. So um, they ask around. Herod goes to the scribes, and the scribes read Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5, which reads, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrath, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. So talking about this last part here is talking about like um, he's supernatural. And but it says specifically he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And that's where we get this one. Number 21, we read in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The Messiah will take away our sins. This is one of the most important messianic prophecies of all time. This one... Christians, we should all rec recognize this one and underline this or mark this in our Bibles or make little cards to remember. This is a very important prophecy. Messiah takes away our sins. Now, look what is stated here. Zechariah 3, 8, 9. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. So stop there for a second. The branch, messianic title again. The branch declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What is iniquity? Sin. What's the Messiah going to do? It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the branch. What's he going to do? He's going to remove sin from all the land in a single day, which is what Jesus did on the cross in one day. It was all prophesied. Many of the Jews missed it. They just didn't catch it. Go to number 22. How will you recognize the Messiah? Well, Zechariah, uh, staying in this book, going down to chapter 9, verse 9, tells us you'll be able to recognize him because he's going to come in on a little donkey. On a little donkey. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We read this at Easter time. This is what we celebrate Palm Sunday with Jesus riding into Jerusalem. And how's he coming in? Not on a white 
stallion with a sword in his hand. He's coming in as the humble, suffering Messiah, full of love and grace. And that's how he comes in, and he's riding a donkey, prophesied in Zechariah. Moving down to number 23. Still in Zechariah, chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, we find out, we've already saw that he's gonna, uh, the Messiah will be betrayed by a close friend, but how will he, it happen? He's going to be paid for. And in Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, we're going to see he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It reads, And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter. The lordly price at which I was priced. So they took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now this is dealing with Judas Iscariot. He went to the, to the high priest and said, what would you give me if I turned Jesus over to you? They promised him 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied. Actually, it goes back to a thing having to do in the Torah. But anyway, they pay him this. Then he realizes his sin, what he has done. He goes back, it tells us in the Gospels, that he goes back to try to amend this, trying to give the money back to the priest. The priest, this is so funny, they just paid for the murder. But now when he tries to give the money back, oh, we can't take that money. That's blood money, they say. And so they, they wouldn't take it. So Judas throws it into the temple, which is what it says here. Um, and it would be thrown into the temple. And then they gathered the money. They didn't couldn't put it in the treasury because it was blood money. I mean, talk about hypocrites. But then they purchased a potter's field. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and it was prophesied all before. Go to number 24. As we're just sitting here closer to the end, this one's interesting too. In Zechariah, wow, there's a lot in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, we read about the one whom they have pierced. And we read this, and I will pour out on the house of David, again, who's the Messiah coming from, and the inhabitants of, of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercies, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced. Okay, pierced. If you'll recall at the crucifixion, John describes this very well in his account, how Jesus died on the cross. The Romans were surprised that he died so quickly. They went to break his legs. They didn't break his legs because the centurion in charge says, well, he's already dead, don't break his legs. Which again, that was a prophecy that none of his bones would be broken. The other two on the cross uh, next to him, their bones were broken, not Jesus. But instead, Pilate wants his death confirmed. And so the centurion is ordered to confirm the death. So the centurion takes a Roman spear as it says in scripture, this is a Roman spear. This is what a Roman spear at that time period looked like. It's very short. You can see as I stand it on the ground, have it right next to me. It's a little taller than me, but it's not real long. The hand part is right here where you would grab it. The reason this is set up like this, this iron ball, if this was to be thrown, it wasn't primarily a throwing weapon. It was a stabbing weapon. If a soldier was to throw it, the way that this is built because of the heavy iron ball in the center, which helps balance it, hits the ground, this part here, the pointy part, breaks off. Thus, it cannot be used by an enemy against them. So it was a strategic weapon uh, put together very wise, but wisely. But the thing is, notice the shortness of this. How many times do we see passages or paintings and stuff talking about Jesus being crucified on a tall cross? He wasn't. He was crucified on a very short cross. This is evidence of that right here. Because to stab him, they wouldn't stab him in the ankle or anything. They're going to go for the heart. So to stab him, and that's what centurions did, they would stab him by taking this. Jesus had to be on a short cross to be stabbed in this manner to poke him like that. So he's on a short cross. We also know that when he was stabbed and pulled out the blade, the soldier pulls it out. John records that blood... Well, of course, blood's going to flow, but it says water. That gives us an indication Jesus was stabbed, not in the bladder, as I've actually heard some pastors say. No, centurions are not going to check to see anybody dead. Um, gladiators didn't go after the bladder in arenas and stuff. You don't do that. You're going for the heart. By stabbing in the heart, blood's going to come out, of course, but then pericardial fluid, which is a transidate, and it looks like water. John is describing anatomically, perfectly, Jesus being stabbed in the heart. So it would have gone up probably partially through the liver, through a lung, into the heart is what they would do. That's a fatal wound. 
And so it was done with this. Also, we know that Jesus was crucified on a short cross because a person runs and gives him a sponge dipped in sour wine and sticks it on a hyssop branch and lifts it up to him. Hyssop is a short, scrubby little plant. Branches are not that long. Thus, Jesus was crucified on a short cross. And we see that. Well, there's one more we can do here, number 25, and then our time's going to be up for this lesson. We're going to get out of Zechariah. We're going to go to Malachi really quick. How will you recognize the Messiah? In Malachi 3, verse 1, God tells us there will be John the Baptist prepares the way before him. Because we read, Behold, I will send a messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So this is talking about before the Messiah comes, God is sending a messenger. And we know that this was John the Baptist. So all of this was prophesied. So many more, but these are just 25 major prophecies concerning how we, the Jews should have, and we today can recognize Jesus as Messiah. Jesus fulfilled every one of these and over a hundred more prophecies. The odds of somebody fulfilling just these 25 is beyond reason and impossibility by the laws and the methods of science. Yet, it happened. It happened. It's like John wrote in his gospel um, at at the end, he gives us this beautiful verse about why all this is written. Um, John 20, 31 reads, But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this series. And this lesson today, uh, I want you to continue with us on this, but this lesson today, oh my gosh, how important this is to see how Jesus fulfilled these messianic promises, uh, prophecies and, and fulfilled all of this that God promised the people and he did it all. All these things, and there's so many more that we can't even cover in this. But if you want more information, like I say, go to our website, click on the lessons on the Road to Emmaus. There's a number, 20-something lessons there. You can go and read about 80 major prophecies and, and hear my explanation of these things and how Jesus fulfilled them. So thanks for joining us today as we continue in this series. Give me a reason to believe. Well, here's a reason to believe Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning the suffering Messiah. And that is so amazing that he did that. That's a good reason to believe right there. But we'll cover more as we continue in this series. So until we meet again, take care and may God bless. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.